We are in Luke chapter 22, and we're going to be looking at verses 35 to 38. And you're probably wondering, what in the world is that illustration all about? So, (laughs) you will see. So in Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 35... We read, And he said unto them, When I sent you without purse and scrip and shoes, lacked ye anything? And they said, Nothing. Then said he unto them, But now he that hath a purse, let him take it, and likewise his scrip. And he that hath no sword, let him him sell his garment and buy one. For I say unto you that this that is written must yet be accomplished in me, And he was reckoned among the transgressors, for the things concerning me have an end. And they said, Lord, behold, here are two swords. And he said unto them, it is enough. Father, we pray now, Lord, for um, your blessing on this time as we look into this passage, a passage that has been misunderstood by many and uh, has uh, been wrongly applied uh, by many. I pray, Father in heaven, that uh, you would allow me, Lord, to um, uh, effectively communicate, Lord, what you have shown me here. And I pray, Father, that we be edified from your word and encouraged from your word. I pray, Lord, for those folks who are facing surgeries, who are dealing with cancers, who are have family members and uh, things going on. And it just seems like this time of year, uh, these types of things are just magnified and, and, and so forth. And I just simply pray that your, your hand would be upon them that they would experience your grace in their lives father strengthen them and encourage them we ask this in christ's name amen in um, 1963 uh, bob dylan wrote a song the times they are changing and um one of the choruses or lines or i don't know what you call it i don't know what what you call that stuff in music stanza well, whatever it's called. He wrote, uh, the line it is drawn, the curse it is cast, the slow one now will later be fast. As the present now will later be past, the order is rapidly, rapidly fading, and the first one now will later be last, for the times they are changing. Now, when Mr. Dillon wrote this song, I don't believe he or anybody else at that time uh, had any idea the extent of the changes that they were they were going through that they were experiencing? Uh, some believed um, that um, uh, there were the changes were for the better, and I think in some situations it was. And then there were others who believed it was the beginning of the end. And I believe there's some truth in that. So I think there's some truth. There were some things that were good, and there were some things that were bad, but definitely society uh, changed in the 60s. It definitely, it definitely changed. Um, the Greek philosopher Heracleates, who lived back in 540-480 B.C., He's the one that says uh, change is the only constant in life. He was the one who said that. I don't know if you knew that or not. I had to look it up. But he's the one who, who coined that phrase. And, of course, King Solomon, who lived long before Heracletes, he also recognized this fact about life. He said in Ecclesiastes 3.1, 
To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven. So there's a, one thing's for sure, uh, there's going to be change. And whatever one's attitude the change may be, change is constantly occurring. And, and sometimes change happens pretty fast, doesn't it? Uh, especially this year. It happened really fast. A lot of changes were taking place. And I think it's a sudden shift of change that causes a lot of people heartburn. You know, it's that sudden shift of what it, what it used to be to, well, this is our reality today. And the disciples here that we're getting ready to look at, they were soon to experience a, a sudden shift in what they uh, had become accustomed to. And it would rock their world. It would rock their expectations of what they thought their future was going to be like. All right? So they were getting ready to experience a serious change. Uh, Soon their world was going to come crashing down. But at the same time, a new world was opening up to them. A new world was opening up to them. And I think that's the issue with a lot of us as far as change is concerned. I know it is with me. I mean, it's okay if things change as long as it doesn't change my world, right? As long as, you know, things are okay if it changes, as long as it doesn't affect me. As long as it doesn't affect me. But unfortunately, it does, doesn't it? Uh, If you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, even if you're living on this planet, change is inevitable. And um, if, you're a, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you know what? God allows change in our life. Because when he allows change in our life, guess, that, guess what that does? It changes us. It changes us. And uh, I, for one, need a lot of change. <laughs> but it does. It, it changes us. And that's, that's the purpose of change in the believer's life. And so what I think Jesus was doing here in this passage is that he was prepping his men for the coming change. He was prepping his men for the coming change. We'd already seen where he had warned Simon Peter about the sifting that he was getting ready to experience, right? And the Lord assured him, hey, I'm going to be praying for you, Peter. But that sifting was going to cause a change in Peter's life, wasn't it? That sifting was going to make Peter the rock... Uh, of strength for those he ministers with. He was going to become a leader. But he had to go through this sifting. He had to go through this change. And now he's starting to prep these other men about a change that's going to occur very soon for them. And he opens up the conversation, and he opens up the conversation with this question. He says, when I sent you without purse and script and shoes, he says, lacked ye anything? And they said, no, nothing. We didn't lack a thing. When you first sent us out. And in the beginning of the Lord's uh, public ministry, the people received him gladly. They flocked around him. They wanted to hear his words. He was very, very popular. And the disciples, if you stop and think about it, the disciples, they also um, benefited from this popularity that the Lord had with the people. Uh, Because when he sent them out, uh, the people received them warmly into their homes, didn't they? I mean, they were glad to have uh, the disciples of Jesus to come into their home, especially when they found out that these disciples were given the power of the Lord to heal and to cast out 
devils and stuff. So, you know, these men who were associated with Jesus Christ coming into the home was a great blessing to those that received them into the home. And so when the disciples came back to Jesus, they were all excited about what they experienced, you know. And they told Jesus, you know, all the things that they experienced and all the things that they had done. I mean, they had a very, they had a very good, very profitable, profitable time because the people received them warmly into their homes. But now what Jesus is getting is telling them is, hey guys, those heady days are gone. Things are going to change. Things are going to be different. Uh, what you once experienced, you won't experience again. And the hostility that Jesus shielded his men from, his men are now going to face themselves. And this is what he's trying to prep these men. This is what he's trying, trying to tell them. And so he continues here in verse 36. He says, Then he said unto them, But now he that hath a purse, let him take it, and likewise his scrip. And he that hath no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say unto you that this that is written must yet be accomplished in me. And he was reckoned among the transgressors, for the things concerning me have an end. Now that passage that Jesus quotes from is found in Isaiah 53.12. In Isaiah 53.12 we read, Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. So what Jesus is telling his men is this. He says, you know, my time on earth is soon to end. It's coming to a close, guys. My time on earth is coming to a close. I, I came to present myself as the Messiah, offered the kingdom of heaven to, to the Jewish leadership, and the, and the Jewish leadership refused it. They turned it down. They wanted nothing to do with it. It was a sincere offer. If the leadership would have received it, they, I think the kingdom of heaven would have come in. God's not a liar. He doesn't offer something that he's not going to come through for. But they didn't want anything to do with it. So now uh, the, kingdom of he- the kingdom of God is now in effect. The kingdom of heaven has been withdrawn temporarily. So the kingdom of God is now in effect. And soon after Jesus' ascension into heaven, he would begin to build his church. After the day of Pentecost, he would begin to build his church. And that work continues on even today, doesn't it? He's still building his church. He's still building his church today. And that's going to continue until the rapture when he comes and takes his bride away to be with him in heaven forever. But right now that work is going on. He's building a church. But what Jesus is telling his men now is that, you know what, guys? I'm going to fulfill the role that John the Baptist said of me. He says, soon I'm going to be the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. That's coming very, very soon, fellas. That's coming very soon. And just as Isaiah has said, Jesus is telling his guys, hey, I'm going to be numbered with the transgressors. He's going to be hung between who? Two thieves. And he says, I'm going to bear the sins of many. That's why he died, isn't it? And that's what he's telling his disciples. He says, everything about me is coming to an end, guys. Everything about me is coming to an end. 
And he says, so with me, with everything with me coming to an end, he says a new work is going to begin. A new work is to be undertaken by you folks. And what Jesus is saying to these guys is you need to prepare yourselves. You need to prepare. You need to prepare yourselves as a soldier would prepare. You need to prepare yourself as a soldier who surrenders all to press on in the conflict before them. Now, when I read this, you know, I could understand the bit about the purse and a bit about the script. But when I read this, I was thinking, what in the world does this mean about going out and buying a sword? You know, what is that? What's that all about? Are, are Christians supposed to stockpile weapons in preparation of some sort of actual war? Are we to stockpile guns like crazy militants in the mountains? Is that what he's talking about? I don't believe that's what he's talking about. If you remember later on, when in, they were in the garden, what did, what did Peter do? He pulled out a sword, didn't he? And he whacked off uh, Malchus's ear, didn't he? And what did Jesus say, say to Peter? He says, put up again thy sword into his place, for all they that take the sword shall perish by the sword. So that doesn't sound like to me that Jesus is saying we've got to arm ourselves with an actual sword here. I don't think that's what he's talking about. I don't think this is his intention. But there's a lot of folks who have interpreted it that way. Um, Back in the 12 and 1300s, there was a pope by the name of Boniface VIII. And he used this passage here um, because Rome and the European monarchs were battling out. Rome wanted to control the monarchs, and the monarchs didn't want Rome to control their kingdom. So there was, they were fighting and, and battling it out. So Pope Boniface VIII, he, he used this passage uh, to declare a, they call it a papal bull. <laughs> And I'm just going to leave that there. Uh, He declared this papal bull, and uh, this is the new doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. He said the Pope has the right to exercise secular as well as spiritual autocratic rule over mankind. And referred to these two swords here in verse 38... And he said, there is the sword of the spiritual rule, and there is the sword of the secular rule. In effect, if one does not submit to the spiritual rule of Rome, then the Pope has the right to wage physical war upon those who do not submit to get them to submit. No, that is not. That is not biblical Christianity. That is not biblical Christianity. And nowhere in the Apostle Paul's writings are you going to find that. But you're absolutely right, Ron. That's, that's taking Scripture completely out of context. Now, conversely, does this mean that Christians are not allowed to own firearms? Or should Christians not resist uh, you know, evil or injustice? Or Christians not serve in the military? No, it doesn't teach that either. You know, if you want to buy a pistol, go out and buy a pistol. 
If you want to serve in the military or the police force, serve in the military and the police force. Romans 13.1 says, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that are that be are ordained of God, whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to them's damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. So yes, there is a right use for the sword. And frankly, would to God that more born-again believers wielded that sword of justice than the jokers that are wielding it now. But no, it doesn't say that we can't do that. What Jesus is using here is the language of a soldier who is outfitted for a campaign. Okay? A campaign on behalf of the kingdom of God that began on the day of Pentecost and will continue until the church is raptured. And after the church is raptured, then that campaign switches. And that's when heaven declares war on earth and takes care of the wickedness on earth. And he returns and establishes his kingdom. But now, we as believers in Jesus Christ, we are to be armed for battle. We are to be armed for battle. But yet the battle we fight, the campaign we fight, is not a campaign of flesh and blood, is it? It's a campaign that's fought against spiritual forces of darkness. The battle plan we use is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it will end in the glorious return of Jesus Christ. But our warfare is a spiritual warfare. Is a spiritual warfare. And this is what Jesus is doing with these men here. He's prepping his men with these words about the purse and the script and the sword because he's telling them pretty soon you're going to find yourselves in the foxhole. So you better be ready. You better be ready. You better be ready to go. Just like soldiers in the field of battle, they're going to find themselves pressed beyond measure. And they're going to need to cultivate the attitude of what Paul would later write to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.3. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. He says, no man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. So he says, be ready, guys. Because when I leave, you will be the one in the trenches you will be the one that will have to take on the battle that I will leave you. And the campaign that the church wages is one greater than any world war this this planet's ever fought. You see, the wars that men fight is over what? Territory and riches and whatever. But the war that we as Christians, bodies, uh, members of the body of Christ, you know what? You know what the the the, um, the the stake in this war is? The souls of men and women. That's right. Amen. The souls of men and women. 
That's what's at stake here. That's what's at stake here. Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 10.3, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. In other words, it's not an actual sword of steel. But mighty, through God, to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. You see, the battlefield is spiritual, and the battlefield is the hearts and minds of men and women. Because an enemy has darkened their minds with lies. And we have to tell them the truth. And that's where the campaign is waged. That's where the battle is fought. It's fought in the hearts and the minds of men and women and boys and girls. Because the truth that they're getting from the world condemns their souls. While the truth that we have saves their souls. Saves their souls. But unfortunately, many misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. These men, what did they do? They pulled out two swords. They misunderstood. They pulled out two swords. Here's two swords, Jesus. Now, honestly, think about that. Are two swords going to be enough to take on Rome and religious leadership? And No. No. And what did Jesus say after they pulled the two swords out? It is enough. Now, is he saying that, okay, guys, with these two swords, you're going to put to flight thousands like Jonathan and his armor bearer did? No. Those two swords aren't going to, pardon the pun, aren't going to cut it. Because that's not what he's talking about. I think this expression, it is enough, is uh, the Lord saying, okay, once again, you guys missed the point. Once again, you don't understand what I'm saying, but you will understand. You will understand. You see, these men are still blind to the real campaign to be fought, just like, well, just like so many of us today. We're kind of blind to the campaign that we would re- we should really be involved in that we should really be all about because the campaign is not to be fought on a physical field of battle it's to be fought in the minds and the hearts of men and women and boys and girls you know the bible says we are to be armed though the bible does say we are to be armed in 1 Peter 4.1 it says, For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that has suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. So we are to arm ourselves likewise with the same mind that Christ had. have the same attitude that Jesus had. Jesus came to fulfill a mission, didn't he? He was sent by the Father with a mission. 
And Jesus was very aware that that a large part of his mission involved suffering. A large part of his mission involved suffering. And if you truly understand the mission, if you truly understand the campaign, you're truly involved, then you, you understand this, don't you? There is suffering involved. There is suffering involved. The folks on your job will think you're weird, not have anything to do with you, get angry with you. You may miss out on promotions because you're a Bible-believing Christian. That's what happened to me. They didn't give me a promotion simply because I was a Bible believer. So there is suffering. Your family, your lost family, they'll ostracize you. They'll say things about you. They'll tell you to be quiet. We don't want to hear it. There's suffering. There is suffering. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. I've been to parts of this world where there's believers who are truly suffering. Lost homes, put in prison, all sorts of things go on. So suffering is a part of the campaign. And this is the mindset that we are to adopt. What does Paul say in Romans chapter 12 that we are to be what? Living sacrifices. That's a part of it. Am I a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb? And shall I fear to own his cause or blush to speak his name? Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? Do you remember that hymn? I guarantee you're not going to hear it anymore. Not in our time. It seems that when the church experiences hardship, it flourishes. But when the church experiences comfort, it becomes weak and anemic. Sadly, the spirit of the church today, especially here in America, uh, folks leave the battlefield when it's too tough, too demanding, too hard. So we are to arm ourselves as Christ has suffered in the flesh. Arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. We're to arm ourselves to the will of God. Romans 13, 12, the, the night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not rioting in drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. Another old hymn says, Who is on the Lord's side? Who will serve the king? Who will be his helpers? Others live lives to bring. Who will leave the world's side? Who will face the foe? Who is on the Lord's side? Who will for him will go? At times, at one time, we used to hear hymns like that in the churches. Because at one time, we understood what the battle was all about. I'm glad I'm in a church that knows what the battle is all about. Brian tells us all the time in pastor's meetings, we're here to fight real battles. 
We're here to fight real battles. And we're fighting for the hearts and the souls of, of people. Real battles. What about this one? Onward Christian soldiers marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. Christ the royal master leads against the foe forward into battle see his banner go. Onward Christian soldiers marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. How do you think a hymn like that would go over in a Joel Osteen church? Hmm. How about this one? Soldiers of Christ, arise and put your armor on. Stand strong in the strength which God supplies. From strength to strength go on. Wrestle and fight and pray. Tread all the powers of darkness down and win the well-fought day. You don't hear that anymore. You don't hear that anymore. I think, um, ah, gosh, sometimes I know I sound so negative, and I apologize for that. I really do apologize for that. But it is a reality. I think the church today has lost its fighting spirit. I do. I think we've gotten maybe comfortable, complacent. Yeah. Laodicean, there you go. It's the spirit of the age, isn't it, Ron? The spirit of the age. Yeah, the times, they are changing. And we need the armor of God more so today because the spirit of the age has settled. We, have the, the, it, it, we are so deeply entrenched, but in the wrong things. See, trenches... That's where you hide out when the bullets are flying. But ground isn't gained as long as you lay in the trench. We need, and I'm speaking to myself, we need believers who are courageous and get up out of the trenches and go across that no man's line and face the enemy fire. And I'm speaking to myself. I'm speaking to myself. Turn to Ephesians chapter 6. We are to arm ourselves, but not with actual swords. We're to be well equipped, but, you know, not with... I don't, I'm not even familiar with weapons. What are they? AR-15s or whatever those things are called? Ephesians 6, 10. He says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. You see, literal swords aren't going to do any good in that kind of a battle, is it? I don't care what kind of pistol or rifle you have. Wherefore, take on to you the whole armor of God that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. You know, I had a pastor friend just recently die. And that was one of his mantras or mottos. 
He says, I pray that God finds me standing when it's my time. And um, he was sick, terribly, terribly sick. And he preached in his church. And what was it? Two days later, a week before he passed, he preached in his church and then passed away. He shouldn't have been there. But he said he wanted to stand. He wanted, when his time was to go, he wanted, he wanted the Lord to find him still standing. And he did. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. These aren't physical weapons. These are spiritual weapons for a spiritual campaign to be fought against a spiritual enemy. Truth. God's truth must encompass our whole life. We must study God's truth. We must seek to understand God's truth. We must come to the place where we apprehend God's truth for us. We must put this truth on like a garment and apply it to our life, to our minds, in our dealings with others. Please, don't get your doctrine from contemporary Christian music. Don't do that. Don't get your doctrine from popular ear-tickling teachers. Don't get your doctrine from Christian pop psychology books. Go to the sincere milk of the word. That's where you get your truth. That's where you get your truth. Ron mentioned it earlier about the Laodicean church age. Laodicea was told to buy of me gold, try it in the fire. That gold is the word of God. Psalms 119, 127 says, Therefore I love thy commandments above gold, yea, above fine gold. Therefore I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. Let me challenge you with something. In your Bible reading, read Psalms 119, a stanza a day. And pray about what you're reading. Pray a, read and pray a stanza a day of Psalms 119. Because the problem is this, guys. People do not love God's word. Amen. That's why they don't spend any time in it. Breastplate. This protects our hearts. Remember that? The issues of life are from what? The heart. That's what Proverbs 4 tells us. We are made righteous by legal standing in Christ. This is our justification. But we also must be righteous in character and in behavior. 
We become exposed to the enemy when we choose to live an unrighteous life. When you choose, when I choose to live an unrighteous life, it's like you're exposing yourself to the enemy. Shod feet. Our, our walk is a walk of faith with Jesus Christ. We walk in the gospel of his peace through a broken and hopeless world. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man to ask you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. We walk in hope. We have the message of hope. In fact, we have the message, the only hope that this world has. And I have to confess that I haven't always put those shoes on. When I've been given the opportunity to speak to someone about this hope, I got to change that. I got to change that. Shield. Shield of faith. When our enemy assaults us, and he will, then we're hold up that shield of faith. You know, in battle, when the soldiers, when the Roman soldiers were standing there in the line, they would lean into the shield. Okay? As that opposing force was coming to them, they would lean into that shield to take the blow, to resist the onslaught. We're to lean into the faithfulness of God. He's faithful, is he not? We are to lean into the truth of his word. We are to lean in the finished work of Christ. We are to lean into that power of the indwelling Holy Spirit in our life. We are to lean into our faith as the enemy seeks to take us down. One of the successful tactics used by the Roman army was called the uh, testudo or the tortoise. And what the soldiers would do is they would form a compact column and then they would link shields front, back, sides, and even on the top. That's where it gets its name, the tortoise, because it looked like a, a tortoise. And they would link their shields together and then the enemy, they couldn't penetrate the, 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 that, that, uh, those shields because they were so tight. And they would shoot arrows and throw spears, but nothing could get through that. An isolated Christian is a vulnerable Christian. We need each other. We need to link shields. Because an isolated Christian is a vulnerable Christian. And unfortunately, and I think it's prompted by what we've been experiencing here in 2020, we've got folks who are isolating themselves. I'm sorry, church online is not enough. Don't fall into that. Don't fall into that. You need to be where the body is. I need you guys. You guys are encouraging to me. I need you guys. And I hope you need me. 
and you have the helmet of salvation. The battlefield is in the mind, guys. We are secure when we surrender our thoughts to God's thoughts. When the enemy seeks to discourage us and depress us and lie to us. That's what Paul is saying here in 2 Corinthians 10.5 by casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Paul says in Philippians 4.8, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. What are, what are the things that you think on? What is occupying your brain case? What are you putting in there? What are you watching? What are you reading? What are you listening to? The helmet was designed to protect the head. Our mind and our thoughts are to be guarded. Are to be guarded. Are to be protected. Romans 12.2 tells us we are to renew our minds. Philippians 2.5 says we are to have the same mind as Christ. 1 Peter 2, 2 says we are to feed the mind with the word of God. Jeremiah 15, 16 says thy words were found, and I did eat them, and thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of my heart, for I am called by thy name, O Lord of hosts. What are you putting into your mind? I read an excellent book years and years ago by a fellow by the name of um, Dwight J. Pentecost. The name of the book is called Designed to Be Like Him, and this is what he said about the mind. He said, The new mind was given to the child of God in order that with that mind, the child of God might know the Father. God did not have to make man a new creature so that man could understand history or mathematics or languages or physics or medicine. He said the old mind was sufficient for all that. The new mind was given because of man's one great deficiency in the area of mental activity, and this was his inability to exercise his mind toward God. If the child of God is not exercising his mind Godward, then he cannot know fellowship with God, and they cannot fulfill the purpose for which he was made a new creature for. What are you putting up there? There used to be an old saying, garbage in, garbage out. Right? Then you have the sword. The only offensive weapon that we have in this campaign is the word of God. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. What was it that Jesus used to repel the temptations of the devil in the wilderness? The word of God. The word of God. That's what he used to repel the attacks of the enemy. And yet so many are neglecting the one offensive weapon that we have against the attacks of the enemy. Or 
Yeah, I'm going to go there. They're using a cheap copy or substitute. I am so thankful that I am in a church whose leadership stands on, I'm going to say it, the King James Bible. Because that indeed is the sword for the English-speaking church. You can trust this sword. The other ones, you cannot. In fact, some of them will even tell you, well, in the best manuscripts, you can't really believe what you're reading here. That's a paraphrase. But that's essentially what they're saying. Why in the world would I trust in a Bible that they don't even, they're not even certain of? Okay, I'm going to stop. <laughs> I'm getting myself worked up. i got to say one more thing. There was a time back, I don't know, it was a few years, called the Scholar's Bible. I may have told you about this. And so these scholars got together, and they were going to dig in there, and they were going to find the Word of God. And so what they did was they color-coded their Bible. If they were absolutely sure that it was the words of Jesus, then they would write it in red. If they weren't so sure, then it would be blue. If they were only maybe 30%, it would be gray. Well, by the time they got down, these educated scholars, you know how much of that Bible of theirs was written in red, that they were absolutely confident that these were the words of Jesus? Less than 1%. I don't want that kind of Bible. That's a tinfoil sword. That's a tinfoil sword. Okay, I'm done. And then prayer. We got to keep those lines of communication open between HQ and the battlefield. And I think this might be the Achilles heel of many of God's soldiers on the battlefield. In the area of prayer, a failure to keep those lines of communication open. George Bernard Shaw once said, the biggest problem of communication is the illusion that it has even taken place. (laughs) And I think some folks have that attitude toward prayer. They shoot a real quick word toward heaven... And then they call it good. They call it good. That's not the prayer of a soldier who's enduring hardness. Sometimes people only send up prayers when the bullets are flying. That's the only time they'll pray is when they find themselves in a fix or they're in trouble or... That's not... It's not praying as a soldier enduring hardness. Some pray half-heartedly. I've done this. (laughs) Shame on me. I've dozed off while praying. I've dozed off while praying. I'm talking to myself when I'm talking to you guys. 
You know, I'm recognizing things in my own life that, you know what, Jeff, I need to get some things corrected here. Sometimes we pray not really fully understanding the seriousness of the conflict we're involved in. Paul says in Romans 15.30, he says, Now I beseech you. You know what that word beseech is? I am begging you. Now I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake and for the love of the Spirit that ye strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. When's the last time I I strove in prayer? Paul was a stalwart soldier of the cross. And he called out for the saints to strive with him in prayer as he strove physically in ministry for the sake of Jesus Christ. One man said the Christian soldier, if he or she fights to win, must learn to pray and pray much. Yeah, I'm going to go there too. You know, we have a prayer meeting on Sunday night when we take the prayers that people call the church about and we put them on a list and Brian will have them all chopped up and he'll pass them out. Uh, Ron, how many folks usually show up on a Sunday night? Three to five or six or seven. Six is a good night. Usually three to four. Now, I'm not chastising anybody. And I don't always make it myself. But prayer is important, don't you think? Our orders are pray, pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. We're pretty good with the sword. We might have our armor in place. But how often do we forget to pray? You know, we're going to look at this later, but when Jesus and his men went into the garden, what was it that Jesus said to his men? He says, pray that ye enter not into temptation. (laughs) I don't know about you, but like my friend... I want to finish my tour of duty well. Like Paul. In in 2 Timothy 4.6. He says, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. The times, they're changing. The question is, will God's people be be ready to meet those changing times? I can't answer that. For anybody but myself. I... 
pray that I will be. Amen? Amen.